Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, it's The Economy, Stupid. We look at the Business Council of BC's economic outlook, and boy, it ain't pretty. Canada's economy won't reach pre-pandemic levels until 2027. Plus, from eliminating PST for new builds to rent-to-own programs, we've got the opposition's housing plan as we head towards an October provincial election. And the politics of supervised injection sites. Richmond City Council supports the idea. So why is the NDP government undermining them? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, the Premier was in Langley, and he talked to voters there in the Fraser Valley, uh, and it focuses on housing and many middle-class issues. Uh, at its core, he is reaching out to, to voters there uh, and further into the Valley, because to hold on to their majority, they need to win in those areas. Of course, the focus at its core is always economic. It's always about the wallet. Take a listen to his comments. We want a province, we want communities like Langley to be a place where you can build a decent life. That means that you have a home that you can afford that's a good place for you to live, for your family to live. It means you have access to health care, family doctor. When you go to the hospital, you know you're going to get the care you need when you need it. That our uh, communities are safe, that our parks and downtowns are safe, and that the people who are struggling are also safe. Now, those comments, of course, are very mom and apple pie, especially in a, uh, an election year. But at its core, everything he talked about there comes down to having a strong economy. For the last decade or more, BC has enjoyed bragging rights uh, for its economic performance uh, compared to the rest of Canada. Uh, the, the province generally outperformed its counterparts in many cases when it came to jobs, population and GDP growth. But more recently, the wind has come out of BC's economic sales. The, econo- the economy is cooling and a time where BC's population and public sector continues to grow. Well, today, a new report from the Business Council of BC reaffirms what many have been talking about behind the scenes. In the lead up to next week's provincial budget, the forecast from BC BC shows economic growth in our province will slow in 2024. Joining me to talk a little bit about this issue and this report is Ken Peacock, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist for the Business Council of BC. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So walk me through, why is this just going to be a slowdown that's temporary, or do you see bigger issues here that's going to really impact our future economic growth? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a bo- both going on, Jazz. There is a cyclical element to this. Uh, there's not much doubt about that. The, it, we expect the economy to grow by that sort of modest 0.7% pace this year, um, in, in large part because of higher interest rates. Those, of course, are a drag on households, higher borrowing costs, and they're dampening business invest, investment as well. And then there's the global slowdown, which is also dampening up, dampening BC's sort of prospects over the next couple of years. But the wrapping up of the large capital projects <clears throat> excuse me, that you mentioned, mm-hmm. big factor, that leaves a big hole in BC's economy. Um, it's very significant, in fact, because there was like tens of billions of dollars in construction activity flowing into these so, so just to slow you five there, years. So yep. just to slow you there, that's the uh, LNG project up north, the uh, coastal gas pipeline and, and the build of the actual facility in Kitimat. You've got the t- TMX pipeline that will be moving uh, bitumen from Alberta to uh, to Vancouver here and then to uh, to foreign foreign lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those types of projects are what you're talking about. Yep, and so I would put Site C in there as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of exploration activity uh, related to looking for gas uh, feedstock into LNG. There was a couple other related pipelines. So the capital build-out re- really was big. And that is now winding down and fading. We will get a lift when LNG exports start and yet the pipeline starts operating. But nothing nothing similar or comparable to, to the build-out. So there's the downshift there. And then in addition... 
we see a lot of headwinds here in British Columbia. We've got high tax rates, um, the fourth highest personal income tax rate in North America, and we've got a policy agenda that is quite challenging with respect to climate policy and carbon taxes uh, for advancing land-based projects and BC's export sector in, in general. So that's a medium-term challenge. So there's a bit of a question mark uh, how robust our rebound will be in 25, 26, 27, Jess. All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of those things. Let's talk about the public sector versus private sector. Uh, from what I can tell in this report, there has been significant growth in the public sector, uh, but very little growth in the private sector. Yeah, this this is what is particularly concerning. So in 2023, BC, if we just look at the private sector payrolls, so the number of people that have a job, a payroll job in the private sector, that actually fell in 2023. It was a small decline, 0.2%, but still, that's six or 7,000 fewer jobs in the private sector. In contrast, BC's public sector grew by 4.4%. So that's a, a very large jump in the number of workers in the public sector. That was the strongest increase in Canada. And flipping back to the private sector, Jazz, we, we saw that mild decline I just described, but every other province in the country saw growth of 3, 3 4% in private sector payables. So something very unusual is going on in BC. The winding up of projects is part of it. Um, probably increased payroll taxes and uh, higher operating costs are probably also a factor. It's difficult to really know, but I, t- I tell you, Jeff, I haven't seen a divergence or a difference between job markets uh, with BC compared to the rest of the country like this before. It really is something that's got my attention. Uh, and the other issue is, of course, the carbon tax, uh, which will continue to go up um, uh, in, across the country, but certainly here in British Columbia. Uh, I want you to f- let's focus on this a little, a little bit for a moment. It impacts every individual, but every company making an investment decision in British Columbia. So between now and if we continue this route in regards to increasing carbon tax, what do you see by 2030 here in our province? Yeah, it's going to be a very, very significant challenge. Uh, I haven't actually done any specific work, but I have looked into the modeling work that the province did with respect to economic projections uh, and trying to understand what the implications of the Clean BC Roadmap to 2030, which is the plan that has the carbon tax going higher and a bunch of other climate-related policies in it. And it, it turns out that the government, when it, it embarked on its exercise, uh, modeling exercise to understand economic impacts, very, very large hit to the economy. By 2030, uh, their modeling results show that the economy will be $28 billion smaller than it otherwise would be. So this is a very significant dampening and trimming of growth um, that that right now, the uh, if the government proceeds with the policy plans as outlined in Clean BC 2030, uh, the, the implications will be much slower growth for BC, particularly in BC's export and sector and land-based activities. It is a, a sobering read, uh, and you know you want to look at t- things that are positive. But the trend lines, you know, the economy is going to pick up a little bit. This year is going to be a bit tougher. But the core structural challenges within our economy and the decisions governments make in regards to attracting future investment and continued uh, production in our province, it doesn't speak very well in regards to where we're headed. No, we it, it's um it, we. You know, the, the budget comes out next week, and it feels like we're in this 
awkward sort of box of a situation here because there's enormous spending pressures, of course, um, to deal with health care, homelessness, housing, uh, unaffordability, all these challenges we're w- well aware of. And at the same time, uh, when the government's going to need additional revenue, you've got the economy slowing down, you've got these projects uh, wrapping up and, and, and winding down. And then you do have this big question mark about uh, BC's ability to attract further uh, and more investment to continue to grow and, and expand at, at a rate in the private sector that can generate sufficient tax revenue to deliver uh, public, much-needed public services. So, you know, while they're going to be looking for more revenue, Jeff, Mm-hmm. There's there's no room for additional tax increases just because of our competitive position. And in fact, I would argue it's time to start looking uh, to to areas where we might trim our tax rates a little bit to make VC more competitive. But as it stands, uh, it's increasingly difficult to attract capital investment into VC. Ken, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jess. Those are some of the chants and other language being used at Richmond City Hall two nights ago as the council there um, approved a supervised consumption site in the city of Richmond. We had uh, a cash sheet, one of the city councillor uh, on the show yesterday. Uh, he, of course, was the one who one of the two councillors who moved the motion. Uh, he, however, was concerned. You think he'd be happy with the motion being approved, but he wasn't happy with the fact that he felt that the uh, Coastal Health Authority basically undermined him, basically saying that you may they may not need a site in Richmond. Uh, many have said, look, the NDP was behind that, of course, blinked, uh, concerned that they could lose some votes in Richmond. They did well last time uh, during the last provincial election. Here is Mr. Heed expressing some of his concerns just the day after uh, the very motion that he had supported was approved. We were willing to work with Vancouver Coastal Health Authority to figure out what would work in Richmond. If you look at the motion, that's what that says, realizing that they have the lead on this as we go forward. So we were encouraged to get that letter. But then it seems to be politicized because the premier has come out and said, well, no, uh, you know, we don't really need that here. Twenty six people died. Tell those to the family that have lost the loved ones. Tell them to the families that are going to lose their loved ones in 2024 now, that was yesterday. Henry Yao, who is uh, NDP MLA in Richmond Centre South, uh, put out a tweet, a series of tweets, uh, basically say, look, we believe in saving lives and, and care what's happening. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's not usually the strong commentary you hear from the NDP in regards to supervised injection sites. A lot of politics behind the scenes here because it doesn't look like it's moving forward, even though council said that they're opening to looking at the idea. Joining me now, Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, what the heck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> so I think this one uh, got out of the grips of the government a little bit here. And the understanding that I have from speaking to people inside the provincial government is that when Kashid's motion came forward before council, uh, that they were not properly uh, briefed on the situation. And uh, ultimately, uh, the feeling was pretty clear from what we saw in those meetings that there were still very significant concerns about what one of these supervised con- uh, consumption sites would look like in Richmond. And the sense that I am getting is the government is not opposed to working uh, with the city of Richmond, nor is Coastal Health, but it needs to be the right location. And a standalone facility 
as proposed here by Kashyyyk. And I get the sense in interviews that he's done since then is he was just exploring ideas. But that standalone site is not something the coastal health is interested in and has never been interested in, nor is it something government is interested in. And they would consider one of these sites if it's connected to other places where they deliver services for those who are using these types of illicit drugs. But wouldn't that be the hospital site that uh, is being proposed at the end of the day? That would be a perfect place for it, wouldn't it? So I think ultimately it comes down to what does the facility look like and what sort of community consultation takes place to get to that point. And we are largely beyond the fact that supervised consumption sites are controversial. Mm -hmm. We have so many of them now in British Columbia. You and I both remember, Jazz, when... Uh, Insight stood for a long time as the only one, not just in this province, but in this country. Mm -hmm. Over the last few years, uh, there has been a much bigger push towards the science behind harm reduction and the belief that uh, these facilities save lives. When the coroner, uh, Chief Coroner Lisa Point did her report a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, she announced somebody died in a supervised consumption site in a province where we're seeing nearly seven people die a day from these illicit drug deaths. The fact that only one death in seven plus years happened in one of these sites is a victory for what they do with these consumption sites. But we also know that communities can be concerned about what it means to have a site like this where you are going to be having drug users come into community. So working with those who are in the community is crucial here. Politics is at play for sure, but I think there were issues in terms of how Kashid went about this, uh, and he should have had a better sense that this was one of these, especially in election year, mm-hmm. that this is going to be politically challenging. That's for sure. I've never seen so many elected officials. The BC <laughs> United jump on this. Teresa Watt, who's a, uh, an MLA for Richmond Centre North, and, and Henry Yao from Richmond Centre South jumped on this. And it was f- amazing to watch. There's so much passion and energy for two days. It gets approved, and then all of a sudden, uh, no, it's not happening because this doesn't fit the community's needs at this point. So it was, it was fascinating to watch, I tell you. But it is a further reminder, as you say very well. It is an election year, that is for sure. Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Talk soon. As early as Christmas last year, many in Hollywood were already predicting there will be there would be blood at the box office in 2024. We're not talking about the type with two studio tentpole movies going at each other. We're talking about the red ink kind, and it will be felt on both sides, studios and cinemas with the latter, many have said, uh, experiencing, a, experiencing a tough year. Well, the weakest part of the 2024 theatrical schedule is arguably in its first four months. We're already seeing that. A lot of the poor showing, of course, is uh, being blamed on the erratic pipeline of product that's coming out of Hollywood. Well, joining me now to discuss Hollywood's box office carnage is Mark Staling. Mark is CKNW's in-house movie expert and executive producer for AM730. Mark, good to see you again. Good to be with you again, Jazz. Uh, lots to talk about here. We're uh, in mid-February, and uh, I was looking at some headlines, uh, concerns already in Hollywood in regards to uh, what the box office is looking like. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this era is, is it goes by various different names. I read one article called January, at least, and it seems like into February, The Dead Zone. Because this is where studios drop movies that, for whatever reason, they don't have a lot of faith in. And uh, here we are with, boy, the recent slate has uh, has not been pretty. Argyle 
did not do well. It got destroyed at the box office. Madame Web, I have, you know, I'll admit, I have not seen Madame Web yet, which I guess is technically a Marvel movie, but it's not from the quote-unquote cinematic universe of Marvel. Mm -hmm. uh, but the sometimes the audience scores will actually be okay, and then you know the critics will lambaste something in the audience. Madame Web is just across the board um, getting lamb lambasted by audiences, uh, critics alike. The new Bob Marley movie, I guess, is just coming on. Early returns are very, very poor for that. I thought that the era of the music biopic might have gone away, but I guess the success of Bohemian Rhapsody kind of gave it a second life. I don't oh, know okay. if you've seen uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which was the uh, spoof of the music biopics that came out in, back in 2007, and I thought that might have put a nail in the coffin of bad kind of best of music biopics where it's just kind of, let's reshoot some of the famous moments that happened in this band's career or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but no, they're back at it. Obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody did, did well, and there's this Bob Marley one, which is... Uh, Again, uh, not getting a lot of uh, love. It's called One Love. I think the Bob, Mar Bob Marley One Love is what it's called. But, so yeah. the last six weeks are a bit of a graveyard for the box office. Now, do you think that is structural, like this is going to continue? Just It's a, it's a fundamental reshaping of, of what um, uh, the movie theater means to us, per se. Like people are just saying, wait a minute, I got a big screen at home. I spent the money at Costco, good sound. I don't want to pay, you know, 50 bucks, 70 bucks to buy some t couple of tickets and popcorn and pop and all that sort of thing. And I might as well just watch stuff at home until it comes out on streaming. Is that is this a big structural change that we're seeing? That's certainly a big part of it. It's, it's nothing new where January is where movies have gone to kind of uh, die in a, in a sense. I was looking at a top list of, you know, the best movies that have come out in January and it's uh, the two Paddington movies, which I know a lot of people like, they dropped in January and people did like those. Sometimes quote-unquote dad movies, which uh, <laughs> is something we could talk about maybe down the line, but a couple of Liam Neeson movies, Taken and uh, The Grey were January movies that actually did well. Uh, those are my favorite because it's about 90 minutes of your time. And at the end of the day, uh, good prevails over evil. It's simple. It's to the point, And you don't want to miss a Liam Neeson. So I get that. The 90 minute, yeah. Uh, the, there needs to be more 90 minute movies, I think, in general. It's I, a genre now. I've seen it on Netflix or something. Like, you know, they have the titles romance, espionage, or whatever. The 90 minute movie. Like, it's actually yeah. a title now. <laughs> no, and it's uh, obviously way back in the day, they used to have double features, and there'd be a lot of 70 and 80 minute movies back in the golden age of Hollywood. And I watch a lot of old movies and boy storytelling can be a lot more efficient in you know yeah. 86 minutes uh but uh this uh this period of time there's every now and again you'll get some crossover from late december awards movies that still drip yeah. into january uh but for whatever reason it's not just january it's february as well kind of a wasteland and it, i guess things finally kick off with dune which comes out in march was actually supposed to be a, a release last year but with the warner brothers uh, discovery uh they decided to yank it because of the uh, the actor strike and the lack of ability to promote it. Whether they needed to do that or not, I don't know. But certainly, a lot of people are excited for uh, Dune, which comes out in March. But uh, now there pickings is, are slim. Pickings are slim. But uh, you, you know, we want to end this on a on a positive note. There are a couple of, uh, movies coming out. Uh, that uh, you you pointed out to me, they're actually worth worth watching. They're very much worth watching. I had the privilege of seeing both of these titles at the Vancouver International Film Festival in October, mm -hmm. and they're both foreign films. They're both very different, though. The Promised Land is a Danish movie uh, starring Mads Mikkelsen, and Mads has an interesting career. It's kind of a split career. He does some really cool movies in Denmark, and then he does uh, often playing villains in in Hollywood uh, comic book movies and action movies. He was in the recent Indiana Indiana Jones. 
Uh, he was in uh, well, his first kind of breakthrough in the U.S. I guess was the villain in Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig James Bond movie, and he was oh, yeah. very good in that. Uh, but his 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 Danish his Danish movies, Another Round, which came out a few years ago, is a wonderful movie. Highly recommend that. But this movie called The Promised Land. It's it's a lot of different things. It's a period piece, yes, but it kind of almost is a bit of a Danish Western. It's about Mads as this soldier who comes out of the army and he goes off to the heath, this wasteland of just frozen tundra out in Denmark, and tries to cultivate the land and build a settlement there. So some themes similar to American Westerns were kind of going off into the unknown and trying to, to cultivate the land. Hmm. It's also kind of a chamber period drama, though, and there's also some violence in it. It's got kind of a pulpy revenge angle to it as well, and just it's beautiful, beautiful looking. This uh, cinematography in Denmark is is wonderful. That has come out. That's been in theaters for a week, and that's at the Fifth Avenue. And the other one, which just really blew me away uh, at the film festival, is a French movie. Uh, it's gone through three different title changes, which often happens with foreign foreign films. When it came out at the Cannes Film Festival, it was called La Passion de Dodin Buffon. Then when I saw it at the <laughs> film festival, it was called The Pot au Feu. Now, with its full North American release, they've kind of, I don't know, cranked down the coolness level of the earlier titles, in my opinion. It's simply called The Taste of Things. and Much more mainstream. Yeah, right. and it's a little bit trickier to give a plot synopsis because... It's a bit of a, a vibe movie, but it's I for me it's the best food movie I've ever seen. And there's Is some that great a genre, ones. A food movie. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Tampopo, a great Japanese film about a ramen uh, restaurant, is a great one. Babette's Feast, uh, Big Night, which was directed by Stanley Tucci, which came out in the late '90s about an Italian restaurant, him and Tony Shalhoub. But this, I mean, the first thirty minutes of this is a meal being prepared and it's all real food they had a one of you watch the credits roll it's you know written by so and so and then culinary director is one of the the main credits and it's about a relationship between uh, a man and a woman Juliette Binoche playing the the woman and uh, a French actor who's actually Juliette Binoche's ex-husband Benoit Magimel as this kind of gourmand and it's about their relationship and it's just one where you definitely want to eat before you go, uh, because if you are on an empty stomach in this, it is it is drool worthy. It is just a beautiful small movie about uh, people and the relationship with food and how food brings people together, and uh, really a lovely one. And not the kind of movie um, you know. I'm a bit more of a hard boiled kind of you know. I like crime movies and you know action movies and things of that nature. So it wasn't one that I necessarily thought I was going to be so taken aback by, but. Uh, it blew away everybody that saw it the final night of VIF back in October, and I'm stoked that it's uh, finally getting a big screen uh, uh, screening here in Vancouver. Uh, one just quick little interesting backstory on this movie. It was f the way it works for the Oscars in the best international feature is what they call it now, not best foreign film. Best international feature, each country chooses their nominee. And France chose this film, The Taste of Things, as their nominee. It is very, very French. It's set in the late 19th century, and it's just the French countryside, all that beautiful French stuff. But the movie that uh, a lot of people said, oh, they should have chosen this, and I, I admit I have not seen it. It's supposed to be excellent. It's called Anatomy of a Fall. Mm. And... Anatomy of Fall wasn't chosen as the foreign language or the international feature, but Anatomy of a Fall got nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. It just really took off without the support of the French, you know, government or film society uh, choosing it. So um, a lot of people, for whatever reason, this didn't even end up getting a nomination for, for an Academy Award, which uh, disappointed me a little bit. But it's really a, a beautiful, beautiful movie. And if you, who doesn't love good food? 
I mean, exactly. that, that is a universal thing, is and it I not? Did, I think the, 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 the food genre, the, the movie, the food genre for movies, when, when I think food, I always think of some sort of rom-com where it's an American goes to Tuscany taking a culinary course mm. and falls in love with an Italian or yeah. something or, or someone uh, in France or something like that. But it, this is really interesting. What I found interesting about both these recommendations, no special effects probably. No. It's just adults having conversations and a, a decent plot and all that sort of thing. And speaking, they're adult movies. They're both at the Fifth Avenue, which is a 19-plus only theater, so keep that in mind. And definitely, The Promised Land uh, definitely has some uh, some moments of, of violence, although um, some of it is uh, very, very cathartic when the, when you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but when uh, when the bad guys get what's coming to them, boy, it's, uh, it's great. But uh, yeah, a couple of very different ones. One might be a dad movie, the other more of a, you know, a mom movie, although I don't like to, good movies are good movies. They're both uh, really worth, worth checking out. All right, The Promised Land and The Taste of Things, basically. Hopefully that will save the box office for this year. At least that's a, it's a start besides uh, some of the other movies that haven't done so well in the first six weeks or so. Mark, thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the last municipal election. I remember uh, in Surrey, uh, the then mayor, uh, Doug McCallum, uh, brought out the idea of a 60,000-seat stadium, the size of BC Place, because he said, look, Surrey is growing. We need our own stadium. And he uh, had recommended a 60,000-seat stadium. Now, this is the same mayor who at one point even talked about canals uh, in Surrey, much like Venice. And a previous mayor even talked about at one point having a Ferris wheel out in Surrey. But let's stick with that 60,000-seat proposal from Doug McCallum. We all had a good laugh. A lot of folks uh, said, wait a minute, Surrey is growing. We should have a stadium that size. Others said, wait a minute here, 60,000, give me a break. And Mr. McCallum, of course, had uh, huge challenges in regards to support for many Surrey residents. We actually had some fun uh, when he did announce it. We gave naming rights to our listeners, uh, what would they call uh, the Surrey uh, version of BC Place. Take a listen. We are going to build a 60,000-person arena in Surrey. I'm granting you naming rights to this stadium. Doug's Dream Dome. The What Housing Crisis Palace. Or zoo. The Collecting Dust Bowl. Doug Mahal. Scandlestick Park. Dougie's Tobacco Dome. Pinocchio Place. The Empty Bowl. The Big Hole. Doug Dumpster Fire Dome. I missed that election. <laughs> it was a fun time, that's for sure. Now, of course, I brought all this up because today the present mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, was giving her yearly State of the City address. And she, of course, talked about development in the city, uh, her um, desire uh, in regards to uniting the city. But one of the things she said that is that the council, her council, is looking to add a 12,000-seat stadium or arena uh, to the city. She says that the work will be beginning very soon on this arena or stadium. Uh, Brenda Locke will be on the show uh, tomorrow uh, here in CKNW on this show. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about a potential uh, arena or stadium, a new one for the Lower Mainland, based in Surrey, of course. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this new announcement from the mayor today is Rob Fay, our weekend morning host at CKNW here, and a longtime sportscaster as well. Rob, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And hey, 12,000 is a lot better than 60. We're trending in the right direction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I did like that. Some of the names is Scandlestick Park and Doug Mahal were my personal oh, favorites. Anyway, let's talk <laughs> a little bit about this. I heard this and I kind of thought, you know what? That's not ambitious enough. Uh, I thought it could be bigger, These, whether it's a stadium or an arena. Your thoughts? 
Well, you know, it's an interesting number because you think of a stadium with 12,000, it's too big to be small, it's too small to be big, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. looking at Abbotsford, they're 8,500 for their concerts. You look at Prospera Place up in Kelowna, they're 8,000. Save on Food Place over in Victoria is 8,000. And then you jump up to the Pacific Coliseum at 16,000. So this kind of lands somewhere in the middle. I'm with you. If you're going to do it and you're going to use taxpayer money to do it, coming off that 12.5% increase, I might add, mm-hmm. uh, then I would go for some something in the 15 16,000 range so that you can make some money off of it. 12 just seems to be an odd number. Yeah, for an arena, uh, I thought, you know, why not, you know, if you're building it, a little bit more isn't going to make that much of a difference. Yes, it will cost more. But in the case of, let's say, if they decide, instead of going with for an arena, they go for a stadium, don't they have to think bigger than that? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't 30,000 be perfect for the region? Well, I think if you're going to think of a stadium, then yeah, you're looking at 2530. You'd probably be looking at something like BMO in in, uh, Toronto for what they were able to do to expand. But here's the question, Jazz. What are you aiming for when it comes to your tenant? I mean, if you're going to be a concert venue, you obviously want to be year round. You want to have a roof over your head. But if you're going to go for a team like, dare I say, a soccer team or a cricket team, now all of a sudden you're looking at a completely different demographic and you're looking at a completely different layout, then you could go outside. But And dare I say, snag the white caps and put yourself in a stadium out in Surrey. It could be done. Yeah, but that's that that once again speaks to twenty five or 30,000 seats instead of 12,000, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think if you're going indoors, then you're looking at something in the 15,000 range. And if you're going to go outdoors and you're going to use taxpayer money to do it, then you just go all in and you go for 25 to 30,000 seats. You call it multi-purpose. You put turf in there. And uh, again, you try to make it as year round as possible. Yeah. I mean, and the city is desperately needing that too, not just to Surrey itself, but to, uh, the region. You know, when I look at some of the stadiums and, I, and certainly these are much bigger than what Surrey would build, you know, the new one, uh, the the one in Vegas where they just had the Super Bowl, where the, the field is actually wheeled out and they, and it's like a tray. They, they, they water the grass and they bring this tray back in. And I think uh, yeah. there's a couple of soccer stadiums in Europe that are like that uh, as well. They're going to be doing that for BC Place or uh, something like that. I don't know exactly what in regards to the turf that they need uh, for the World Cup. I mean, I guess those stadiums are going to be a little bit beyond Surrey's budget. It's got to be a bit more modest, smaller. Yeah, it's definitely not going to have the bells and whistles out of the gate. But the one thing that I will say is you look overseas, you brought up uh, Europe, and England's got some great soccer stadiums that are actually in that $15,000 range. It's just a lower bowl, but it's a covered lower bowl, Mm. and it's a exposed roof. I think if you were to make... uh, if you're going to think of the outside model at about 20,000 seats, you've got a great opportunity to do something special and world-class. But again, Jazz, I go back to the question is, what are you utilizing this for? Because even if you bring a soccer team or cricket into there, you're only thinking of like 20 to 25 dates per year. What are you doing with the other 330 dates of the year? Which is why I think the stadium makes sense because then you can bring in concerts, comedians, and use that and make the money back a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, that's part of that's part of the challenge I think you have with these stadiums. I look at BC Place. It has been fabulous for, for this province uh, from day one, and now we put over six or $700 million in, in, in refurbishing it before the Olympics under Gordon Campbell. Uh, no one else is going to build that, and I think that's fabulous. But when you look at it, at the end of the day, it, it, should a stadium like that be actually near downtown? Think of all the housing you could put on that site, because most of the time, it just sits empty. Why not put that further out in the burbs in an industrial area where you go in for your 
eight games a year for BC Place or how many for the Whitecaps, whatever it may be, and utilize the land better. That's where I think Surrey has an opportunity because so much of the audience for a lot of these events isn't all coming in from Vancouver. It's coming from other parts. Question is, can you utilize perhaps SkyTrain with it? And, and that's the challenge. But I think we've always seemed to be lacking that twenty to 30,000 seat open air stadium, which we desperately need in this area. I think you could easily convince the BC Lions and the Vancouver Whitecaps to make the shift to Surrey if you made the relationship more affordable. Because I know those deals that they currently have with Pavco, and they're not very beneficial to either of those teams. And I think if you really wanted to think outside of the box, you could also bring baseball out to the Burbs as well. Because you've hit the nail on the head. The traffic downtown is a burden, the, the, the expense of parking and what have you. But you think of the demographics that are currently watching sports, and it all trends out towards the Valley. So if you could build a brand new stadium and make a deal that's cost effective for the CFL, the MLS or dare I say minor league baseball, those tenants would gladly come out to you. And I think you'd be surprised at who'd be willing to jump from BC place to the burbs. Yeah. Rob, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you. Today, uh, BC's Attorney General, Nikki Sharma, announced ex- uh, expanded access for free legal aid services in the province for victims of gender-based violence. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about that announcement is our Attorney General, British Columbia, Nikki Sharma. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hello, it's always great to be on your show. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, in regards to the dollars uh, that have been announced, $29.1 million uh, for uh, what I'm told is a clinic. Walk me through how this would work. Yeah, so the announcement actually covers two areas. So one is a, a huge, I think, historic expansion of legal aid services for family law in BC. So that would mean anybody um, up to 4,500 people, uh, additional people, get access to legal aid services for family law. So that's a pretty broad expansion. We know it's really important to have proper representation, in particular when there's family violence around. And so we've also changed the legal aid criteria for family law, and part of this money will go towards a first-of-its-kind specialized legal clinic with a team of lawyers and paralegals and navigators that are there for people that are experiencing family law violence and, um, sorry, family violence, and they need legal support because they can't afford it. Um, And I think this will change a lot of lives. It'll change that, that time when somebody wants to leave, but they don't know if they have um, the right legal support or legal advice or financial supports or child protection orders in order to leave an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. It's going to increase the safety for those individuals and hopefully um, change like outcomes for the children involved in those situations. Or other provinces, do you know of any similar type of clinic or similar type of program that other uh, provinces offer? Is this uh, the first of its kind in Canada? Yeah, it's the first of its kind in a lot of ways. Um, this is, is the work that we're doing um, with our partners and through this uh, through this historic like kind of settlement uh, with West Coast Leaf and now called the Center for Family Equity, but was the Single Mothers Alliance. Was so really just focused on this group of people, particularly women that are not able to afford a lawyer, are in a terrible situation in their life. And because of that, there's worse outcomes. So just to focus this directly on family violence and people that need that, I think it's a really big win for access to justice and it's going to change families' lives. Uh, Reggie Mungath, who is the executive director of West Coast Leaf, was on uh, my colleague Jill Bennett show earlier today and was asked about today's announcement. Let's take a listen. It's very challenging to have to get up every day and try to face um, someone who has exercised a lot of power and control over you 
in a court process. Um, and we know that sometimes the court process itself becomes weaponized and is used as another way to exercise control um, and power over someone. And so when that happens, you know, in the pre in a system where people receive, you know, X number of hours of services, we definitely hear about, um, you know, abusive ex-partners who basically kind of run down those hours so that the person will be left without representation and will either give up um, or just have to face um, constant continuing escalation of violence around every time there's a court hearing um, or any time something needs to change with the with the parenting time with the child. Um, so, so it's very much the same situation. It's very much about how we can respond to gender-based violence and family violence in our province and really equip people with a means to get remedies that will help them um, be safe. That was Reggie Mungat, the executive director of the West Coast Leaf, speaking to our Jill Bennett earlier today. Minister, I'm just curious, in regards to the consultation process that you have to go through before you announce something like this today, did you speak to some of these women personally? Um, yeah, I mean, this was a really collaborative effort through the advocacy and work of people like Raji and West Coast Leaf and um, Single Mothers Alliance, which is now the Center for Family Equity and a lot of women that have fought for better uh, supports for this very dangerous time in a person's life. But also, Reggie really explained the sad reality for lots of people when they're facing the justice system. And, you know, my job as Attorney General is to make that work better. So I'm really uh, proud of what we were able to accomplish today. I mean, I remember as a lawyer, um, for a brief period, I worked with women fleeing violence on the scale of women that couldn't afford legal services. And it's horrendous to think about sending somebody to court without a lawyer facing um, someone on the other side who usually is well equipped with a lawyer can afford to pay for that lawyer can afford to make tons of court applications and on top of that that person has that's uh, not without a lawyer has experienced abuse from that side so it's just an inequity in the system that I think this will hopefully go a long way to fixing. And in regards to just the threshold for accessing uh, family law legal aid, uh, you said about 4,500 more people would have access to it. Um, there has been a constant uh, conversation, and not just under this government, previous government as well, of, of just not enough legal aid. Do you think we're there yet, or do you think we still need to find more money in regards to uh, making the system uh, accessible to a lot more people? Because just hiring a lawyer these days in many cases, is just outside of any family's budget. Yeah, access to justice is constantly on my mind in this job. It's really unfair when you can't afford a lawyer, but you need one, right? Or you can't mm-hmm. afford legal services and you need one. So we are expanding services in many ways. You know, are we there yet? No, there's always more work to do. I think adding like 4,500 more people able to access a family law legal aid is profound in the number of people it will help. Um, you know, we're opening Indigenous justice centers across the province to help um, with uh, criminal and family for Indigenous people. We're just going to keep at it. I think there's there's always a lot of work to do when it comes to that, and it's something that I have on my mind a lot. Minister, as always, thank you for your time. No problem. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. 
If there's ever one topic uh, that we probably cover once or twice a week, it's housing. It is the number one issue along with affordability. It's all interconnected. That uh, is the issue for Metro Vancouver uh, residents, but also throughout this province. I just had the housing minister on the other day. Well, today, BC United leader Kevin Falcon uh, introduced his housing platform. Uh, And within that, he says if elected uh, as the premier of this province, he would eliminate the PST on residential construction, launch a government-subsidized rent-to-own program, and many other uh, programs within the United to Fix Housing plan that he introduced. He joins us now in studio. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Lots to talk about here. Let's go through some of these uh, announcements you made today. Number one, rent-to-own program to unlock home ownership. How would that work? So the biggest challenge that uh, first-time buyers face is saving up the down payment. How on earth are they going to save up seventy-five or $100,000 for a down payment? Mm-hmm. And so what I did is we came up with a program that said, okay, well, let's do something where we will allow a situation where we say to the development community, we want you to put aside 15% of all the new you know, housing units that you're building available for this rent-to-own program. And the way the rent-to-own would work is that um, a young couple, say, wants to buy a unit, a condo in a building, they can buy that condo. They essentially have a three-year close, meaning that they they own it, they have a contract, they settle on the purchase price, but they live in it renting, paying rent, market rent for mm-hmm. three years. So let's call it 3000 a month for a couple. Uh, that's an average you know, one-bedroom rent in Vancouver. It's a good number to use. So f- over three years, they pay their $3,000 a month. Instead of paying to a landlord somewhere, every nickel of it goes towards their down payment. And so over three years, that's 112 thousand dollars that they will have available when the unit closes so that they've got their down payment. So the idea is to find a way to help ease uh, the access to ownership for young couples especially uh, and first-time buyers to make sure that they've got an ability to trans. Uh, transform the rent into down payments. And so that would be working with developers in this case. Has that been done before? It has, actually. Well, interestingly, in the past company I, I worked for, Anthem, we had to do that in a project. And the problem is it's very not financially sensible for a lot of companies to be able to do that. Um, and, and so in a couple of rare occasions it's been done. Anthem did one project. There's Kush Panach, actually, the, a fellow out in Port Moody, a developer, a family developer that built a project and took some of those units and made them into rent-to-own, and it worked out fantastic for the purchasers there. They're thrilled to death. Uh, but it's just it's it's really difficult for developers to do on their own. And so what I wanted to do is say, look, we could scale this. Like instead of having some big complex government program where people have to apply and there's all those government mm-hmm. bureaucrats involved, let's do something that's simple, straightforward, easy to get the development community on board. You just have to make them whole for the carrying costs of, of doing it. Uh, and that's a way that we get people into housing. So government can... Uh keep the developers whole in regards to doing this? We, That's right. The, the, the financial concerns, whatever they may be, the liabilities, government can take care of that. That's right. That's the one thing that we as a government have is we've got a good balance sheet, uh, even after the spending that we've seen under the NDP for the seven years, mm-hmm. uh, even with all the deficits and doubling of the debt, we still have, fortunately, a, a reasonable financial position because as you know, former BC Liberal government, we got things back into a AAA credit rating. And so, well, we've lost some of that. We've had a bit of a credit downgrade. Mm-hmm. We're still in pretty strong shape. So we can use that balance sheet to 
to to essentially provide that uh, that guarantee to allow that to happen and work with developers to uh, get young people into housing. We did talk to the Business Council BC uh, earlier in this show in regards to their report that came out and some of the challenges ahead for the economy. Uh, but let's talk uh, back to housing just for a moment here. Uh, you also said you want to eliminate the property transfer tax of up to a million dollars. Why is that? Because, you know, first-time buyers shouldn't have to be penalized when they're already struggling to come up with a down payment and your legal fees and closing costs. Why on earth is the province of British Columbia saying, we're now going to ding you up to another $18,000, which is very difficult to get. Uh, You can't finance it. That means it's just, you know, dead cash that you've got to find somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really hard. So we're saying, look, if you're a first-time buyer, you shouldn't have to be paying that penalty. So we're going to get rid of it for first-time buyers up to a million dollars of property value. Because right now, is it half a million? Is it Yeah, there is a program for half a million. But yeah, this this makes it uh, much cleaner and clearer and, and is more realistic. Right now, if you look for homes, under half a million dollars yeah. in Vancouver, you might find, uh, you know, maybe 40. You yeah. know, it, like it's really, really tough. Now, you also want to eliminate PSD on residential construction so you can build more homes. Doesn't the government take a bit of a hit there, a significant hit? Sure, of course it does. But, you know, one of the things I've been saying to the NDP, you know, for the last, frankly, last well, almost two years that I've been leader of the opposition, is I keep trying to tell them, if you want more affordable housing, you have to make it less expensive. You cannot just keep adding all these taxes and costs and delays and regulatory requirements and new environmental requirements and all the stuff and expect it to get cheaper. They still do not understand this. In fact, just a couple of days ago, David Eby said, actually, our solution is government should get into building housing. Well, God help us. Because if you saw what happened over at the you know, the, the crown agency responsible for housing called BC Housing, mm-hmm. we unearthed those, uh, you know, audit reports that just showed that there was massive misspending taking place. There was contracts being let without proper due diligence. There was no paper trail in some of the agreements that were being done. There was conflicts of interest. And even David Eby, as the housing minister responsible at that time, had to fire the entire NDP appointed board. Mm-hmm. It was so incompetent. So, I, I don't like the idea of saying government's going to be a solution to this problem. But what we can do is we can do things like take away costs that add to the cost of construction. So provincial sales tax, uh, you have to understand almost everything that goes into housing attracts the provincial sales tax. So if you're building, uh, I don't know, say a 350-unit apartment building, you're going to be looking at well over $2 million of just PST costs in that rental building. And that all those costs get passed along in the form of the rents that are going to be mm-hmm. charged. Mm-hmm. So we've got to start making things less expensive. Uh, the other one you've talked about is using public lands to build affordable housing. Um, how much of an impact can that have? I know Pierre Pauliev was sitting exactly where you were sitting last Friday. He talked about that as well. How much of an impact does this really have? I mean, in regards to available public land, we can actually allow for building. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, don't even take my word for it. I'll give you an example. Um, The UBC Properties Trust uh, was started and chaired by Bob Lee, uh, God bless him, an unbelievable British Columbian. Mm -hmm. And Bob had the vision to say, you know what, let's actually, some of this land we'll put on 99-year leases. And what they did is they actually sold some of that land to developers to create housing because they needed housing at UBC. They took the proceeds and they put that into low-cost faculty housing and student housing so that they made affordable student housing. But all of it was done on 99-year leases so that at the end of those 99 years, it reverts back, the ownership reverts back to, you know, the province. Yeah. And, and Or in this case, UBC. And that is the way that we want to go to. So what I'm saying is let's identify government lands. We say to developers or not-for-profits, look, you get this land at a buck a year on a 99-year lease. 
in return, we want you to build below market rental housing so that the rents are going to be below market so that our middle class, you know, first responders, whether it's police officers, firefighters, paramedics, uh, nurses or or baristas or whatever the case may be, can actually afford to live in the lower mainland. And the only way we're going to do that is make the land cost cheap and require the developers or the not-for-profits uh, to uh, you know, build stuff that's going to be below market rent. I'm very curious, uh, Mr. Falcon, um, the BC NDP government announced a pretty significant housing plan in the fall. And, you know, four to six uh, units on a, on a lot, significant changes if they do go forward. And some have said probably one of the most far-reaching policies uh, announced by any government in a very long time. Curious to see... W- you, to hear your thinking on that is it, 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 now. I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, but what do you think of the, some of the things that the, they introduced in the fall? Okay, so I want to try and be fair here, yeah. uh, but with the greatest res- respect, I think we have to look and recognize that after over seven years of this government, the results we've ended up with are the highest housing prices in North America mm-hmm. and the highest average rents in Canada. Okay, so that's not a good result. Now, their previous housing program that they announced back in 2017, which I'm sure got a lot of young people voting for them, uh, was called the Housing Hub. We called it the Housing Flub. And the reason we called it that is that they committed to build 114,000 affordable homes in 10 years. I was in the private sector at the time when they did that, actually in the housing business. And everyone in the private sector looked at that and said, that's absurd. There's no way government's going to build that kind of housing. And of course, they didn't. Here we are, you know, almost eight years into their 10-year plan. They ended up building 16,000 units, a fraction of what they promised. So that context, I think, is really important. But the stuff that they've introduced in year seven of their their, um, uh, time in office, Mm -hmm. uh, some of it's good. The the transit-oriented density around transit station totally makes sense. I've been talking about that for a year and a half. I frankly think they stole my idea, and that's good because they're putting a good idea to work, get, you know, density around the transit stations. They're built, turning every single family lot into four units makes no sense. I can tell you right now, for most communities, it won't make a lot of sense. Think of Surrey, for example. Mm -hmm. You know Surrey quite well, as do I. Uh, Surrey, one of the things that Surrey has been trying to do over the years is to stop the sprawl of growth and and start concentrating growth around transit corridors, et cetera. That's what city center is all about. So the problem is the NDP just upended that table now and said, now we're going to make every single family lot a potential four units. And the reason why that won't happen anyhow is when you take a, a single family home and you want to upgrade it to four units, you're going to have to upgrade in most cases, the sewer, the water, power. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. Who's going to pay for it? They haven't thought that through because none of them come from a housing development background. And I think it's frankly not going to result in the outcomes they expect. And, and But have other communities tried this? The, the, yes. The, they have. And, 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 so. how, and how have things turned out? It didn't turn out very well. And California's had that in place now for almost two years, and they've had very little take-up uh, for some of the reasons that I just talked about. Uh, New Zealand, they tried it. They saw property values increase, which is not necessarily a good thing, uh, but they didn't see the big take-up in housing that they were hoping to see. So, uh, again, I just think it's important for the public to understand whenever politicians come up with a, a, a simple suggestion to a complex problem, it's usually wrong. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they're going to just, you know, wave a wand and suddenly we're going to fix the housing crisis, um, frankly, is not realistic. What do you say to the argument some have made that, look, the, under the BC Liberals, uh, public land was sold. And I think they use the example on Canby specifically where uh, there was some social housing, it's gone, but they were hoping to, uh, a developer would come along and build, but that land still sits empty. Mm-hmm. I think that was one example that they gave. What do you say to that argument? Well, first of all, I think in that case, some criticism is appropriate because I wasn't there when that deal was signed in 2013. I'd retired from public life in 2012. But the, but the point is, 
um, there should have been more requirement to make sure that that housing gets started and there's clear timelines for when the construction should begin. But I also understand the big part of that problem was also the city of Vancouver because mm-hmm. the city of Vancouver is weighing in and saying, we want these community amenity contributions and all these new taxes and costs. And that, you know, the developer's like, wait a minute, we, you know, we're not going to do that because that's going to make it uneconomic. So there was a, you know, sort of a standoff and that delayed things for years too. Enough blame to go around. I accept that. But the one they usually uh, go after me, the NDP go after me for, is, is a site that they called a hospital site in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's the irony. First of all, the NDP just two days ago have basically endorsed what I've said, take government land, turn it into housing. In that case, that was surplus land. The health authority said we're not going to build a hospital there. It's not a good location. It's too close to the uh, Surrey Memorial Hospital. So what did we do as a government? We did sell that land. And what's there now? Over 300 units of housing, including market rentals and including some commercial uh, you know, stores and stuff that feed a lot of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, and, and those, by the way, were being sold in the $400,000 range. So that was affordable housing, getting people into housing. You go talk to people that live there now and they'll say, thank God that happened. It's no different than what we're calling for now on government land, but we're saying 99-year leases and it'd be market rental. That's the key difference. When I listen to elected officials, um, no matter what political background they're at, in some ways even when I listen to Premier Eby, uh, his policies and his conversations speak to working around municipalities because I think there's some frustration there. Pierre Polyev was sitting exactly where you were sitting, and I was listening to yeah. him uh, last week, and same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It, how much of this do you lay at the feet of the municipal governments? Yeah. Uh, Ryan Beatty was sitting exactly where you were sitting yesterday. He was a very much active. We were talking about his family's uh, business, but yeah. he was very much a statesman in regards to how he responded. Uh, but there is so much there. It seems to me there's a frustration with municipalities and how they are a significant part of the bottleneck. Do you buy that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because look, I spent 10 years in the business. Now, I, I didn't work, I worked at a company called Anthem Properties. I didn't work on the development side. I was more on the finance side. But mm-hmm. I would always hear from the development group about the challenges they were facing. It is not unusual to take a project that takes five to six years to get through the municipal bureaucracies in the lower mainland. Some are worse than others. Some are better than others. Uh, a lot of mayors are trying to do good things. Richard Stewart, uh, you know, Mayor Hurley and Burnaby, the mayor of Surrey, et cetera. Uh, even in Vancouver, they're trying to turn around what has been one of the most difficult places to get things built. But the bottom line is we have to do better. And the reason we have to do better and force the municipalities to do better is because time is money and, and delays isn't something the developer pays for. I can assure you it all gets passed along to the end user. And so too with costs. When government introduces a blizzard of new taxes on housing, mm-hmm. I guarantee you it all gets passed along to the end user. So we have to understand if we want if we want housing to be more affordable, you have to make it less expensive. That means you've got to be faster in turning around permits both the municipal level and, frankly, the provincial level, because the province of BC, it's gotten very, very bad, as a lot of the mayors pointed out to EB. They said, you're part of the problem. The problem was his solution was, okay, I acknowledge we are bad, we're not getting permits out, so we're going to hire another 200 bureaucrats to tell the existing bureaucrats how they need to move things faster. Well, I tell you, that's not how it works. You actually have to streamline the existing processes, put timeline guarantees in, and make sure those permits get issued. Kevin Falcon, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. 
joined by show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Jerry, the, the Just for Laughs Festival started today? Today! In Vancouver. Yeah, Just for Laughs Vancouver. There's so many good shows. We got like Bill Burr off the dome is one of them. Oh. Um, yeah, lots of lots of cool stuff going on between now and the 24th. Lots of fun shows. Tickets to them are variously kind of still available. So if you're looking for something to do. And uh, my understanding is you spoke to one of the folks I who did. will be performing uh, and they're, I'd say Vancouver not even Vancouver, Port Coquitlam's Port very young. Port Coquitlam, born and raised, Che Dorena. He, uh, I was just a fan of his, honestly. During the pandemic, I was on TikTok a lot, being alone in my apartment, just scrolling as we did. <laughs> doom scrolling, yeah. Yeah, just doom scrolling and trying to find things that made me laugh. And uh, this dude popped up on my For You page, and I thought he was really funny and really interesting. Um, so when I saw that I had an opportunity to talk to him, I just had to. Because, yeah, it's very interesting. He's Pork Coquitlam, born and raised, mm-hmm. and uh, he kind of bounced around some different countries and doing stand-up in different places, and as of right now, he has 7.7 million followers on TikTok. He's a big wow. deal, big deal, and I thought that it was kind of interesting that, you know, this story of a stand-up who found more fame and more notoriety digitally as opposed to necessarily in the comedy club. So when I got the chance to speak with Che, I wanted to know how he started doing stand-up to begin with. I don't know. I was, I was fresh out of a couple semesters in college. I just turned 19. And I was like, well, well, what can I do? And I didn't really want to do anything. I And I became a scuba diving instructor, so I moved to Mexico. It was just like, whatever. I could leave, live in a different country, kind of uh, be independent. Uh, and then living up there was when I started doing stand-up. Really? In Mexico? Yeah, yeah. So I did it for about a year and a half in Mexico. And it was like once a week we would do it. Uh, and then I was like, well, I want to take this seriously. So then I was like, well, if I want to take it seriously, I got to go to like the biggest market I can go to. And that was Toronto. So I moved there and then I lived there for like eight years or so doing stand-up and had a, had a great time learning like how to be better at this craft. And then... This is where I'm familiar with you from is like kind of in comes TikTok. So what um, drew you to making that kind of content? Was it like a genuine desire to enter the short form video situation or? Well, I think it was uh, the, I had the same sort of situation as a lot of different people during COVID, which was I can't perform live. I'm a comic who's I've always been about like grinding and like getting as many shows in a week as I can. So I'd be out every single night doing multiple shows and now that I had all this spare time what do I do with it Uh, so I decided to like put it towards online content and I was aware that building a social following was one of the best ways to start driving people to shows and so now that I had all this time and I saw some of my friends having success on social I figured this was a good route to go I think even in you know 2020 2021 it was kind of even easier to be viral i think or not saying that it's super easy in general but it's like i felt like more eyes were on the content that needed oh, to be no, does that, that make sense that was the time to so like 20 uh, like 2020 2021 like you could put up numbers like crazy numbers like obviously you can still go viral but there was just across the board i think that's you're seeing it across the tech industry in general now the tech industry is having these mass layoffs because they hired so many people during the pandemic to like keep up with this amount of people that were interacting with their phones and their video games and all this stuff. And there's for sure a drop off, but it's uh, yeah, it, it, I'm grateful that I was able to get in when I did. 
in your in your stand-up, you do a lot, like a lot of crowd work. Is that difficult? I feel like it's scary and difficult. It's not like super difficult. Like some shows are hotter than others. Some people are more talkative than others. You, sometimes you get a thread that is just so good. You're like, you have to keep digging into it. But it, it's it's just a skill I picked up from like doing road work in Canada because we would go out to like these middle of nowhere towns, man. And we would have to do shows for these people. And sometimes these people don't relate to your material. So crowd work was how you would kind of uh, be able to work your way through a show where half your stuff can't connect with these people who don't have anything really relatable with you. So that's where I started like picking up that skill. And then the, the landscape for people putting out crowd work clips is just you, the internet requires so much content. And in order for you to keep up with the pace of the internet and without burning a ton of material as a standup, you kind of just start integrating crowd work in order to fill that void. Now that you say it that way, it's like, oh yeah, well, of course. Did you ever think that the path that you have taken would be the path to uh, finding your success and what you're supposed to do? I honestly, I've never really thought about it in that context of like, okay, I'm going to make this move and then this is going to move to this and then this is going to move to that. I just like, when I started making the content, I was like, I'm going to put out, I'm going to basically do the same work I do as being a standup and make content every single day and put out content every single day and just stay super consistent with it. And I thought about it in those aspects, but I've always just really thought about just like, I'm going to get funnier. And I've, oh, like with stand-up, I'm like, I want to get better at this. With content creation, I'm like, I want to get better at this. I want to learn different skills. And that's always just been the focus. It's like, write every day, go on stage every day, get in as many reps as you can. And when you have that kind of as your main focus, the other things kind of fall into place. How psyched are you to be coming back to, uh, to do a show with Just for Laughs? I was very excited. This show's a big deal for me. And I know like there's going to be a lot of people who like grew up with me or went to school with me or family, friends, all sorts of different stuff of like people like that. They're going to be coming through. So yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big show. It's my first time headlining in Vancouver. We're doing a theater. It's my second theater gig ever. So yeah, I, I, I'm very excited for this one. Uh, and I'm interested to see how that aspect of the show of people like knowing me personally how it affects the audience it's at the vogue on the 24th yeah there's still a handful of tickets left so we'll see we'll see if it gets to, to a complete sellout regardless there's a, it's already so packed in there that it's going to be an incredible time you know what's interesting there is there's an artist performing on tiktok mm -hmm. and then performing in front of a live crowd yeah. That's, those are different muscles you have to use right most certainly there was i listened to a conversation another interview of his and he said that if you like the tiktoks you will love the stand-up because he was saying that people are sometimes surprised they find him from tiktok they go see the stand-up and they're like you're so funny <laughs> you're like actually really funny when you do stand-up he's like yeah that's what i do <laughs> so yeah it'll it'll be good and uh, you can get tickets there are not that many available but if you go to jfl vancouver.com um it's february 24th at the vogue if you're interested and there's also yeah so many good shows on the go oh there's Very lots fun of good people shows. out and about in exactly vancouver this lots week. of there's mainstream stuff and, and eclectic stuff as well yeah. so yeah definitely check out just for laughs thanks for listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.